The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. So, our text for this afternoon is in Psalm 18. We read it as our call to worship, and I'm going to read it again unto our hearing. Psalm 18. I left out the introduction to it. I'll read that through verse 6. To the choir master, the psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Well, that is our primary text for this afternoon, but I'm really trying to accomplish two things this afternoon. One is to introduce a new series. Um, I don't have opportunity to preach very often, but it helps if I can prepare messages that are useful to me while I'm meeting with people. And so I have been uh, working through uh, how to communicate and minister the Word in my office uh, to care for and encourage people. And so uh, this psalm is going to be our primary text, but prior to that, I would like us to turn to Hebrews 11. And this is really going to introduce the series, Hebrews 11. I couldn't have had a better uh, sermon uh, to set up this sermon than the one we had this morning. Uh, Because without Tim and I coordinating, his sermon provided the perfect context for this message. Because my message, my series entitled, Consider Him. And that comes from Hebrews 12.3. But let's start in Hebrews 11, as we look at a few more texts that talk about considering Him, considering God. The first one is in Hebrews 11.11. Hebrews 11.11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And here we have this, uh, this note of Sarah. What, what had strengthened her? and what, what kept her? Well, it was considering him and the promises that he had provided. Uh, Hebrews 11.17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, to whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. There's this connection between the considering of the promises or the consideration of God and Abraham being able to, to go through with this act in faith. 
Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And there's this consideration, and, and uh, Pastor Tim gave us the definition, to direct our mind to perceive or to understand. And then Hebrews 12.3, which is the text that really was the catalyst for this series. We read in Hebrews 12.3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And here we have a text that says, how is it that we, in the context here, they who were being extremely persecuted, could not grow weary and faint-hearted? How are they going to be sustained? It was by considering Him and the work of Christ. And so in that context, uh, we are going to cover one aspect of considering Him I was hoping Patrick wouldn't be here this afternoon to verify this story because I can only remember part of it, but I was watching a reel on Facebook. I like to watch these uh, reels of uh, documentary type things. This particular one was talking about a car. And in this garage was this old dusty car that hadn't been moved in probably 30 years. And they had brought somebody in to determine the value of this car. And so this man was going through, and he was obviously an expert of the car, <clears throat> and he uh, looked at the outside of the car and made some remarks, and then he started looking at the interior and the, the way the, the interior was uh, sewn and the stitching, and then he opened up the hood and he was remarking about things such so small as the way that the paint overlapped into the, into the engine compartment and how they, they had left part of the uh, masking in there that when they taped it. And then he got into the engine, and he, he was ecstatic. He couldn't believe it, because in this car, in this engine, were some bolts. And these bolts had little ridges on the top of them. And he was telling, if I got the story right, that while this particular car was manufactured, there was a problem with distribution. One of the, the distribution plants for these bolts had burned down, and they had to have a new supply of bolts. And they used this one particular bolt, on this handful of cars that made them so unique and so special in all the old amount of industry that if you found a car with this particular bolt, it was a special, special thing. Don't Google my story, Patrick. It's close. It is really close. I came down to the bolts, and I think it was the ridges on them. But this story wasn't about the transportation in general. And this story wasn't even about the automotive industry or the Ford Motor, Ford Motor Company, or the sports cars, or actually even about the Mustangs. The story was really about the bolts. And really it was about the ridges on the bolts. And the more we got into the detail, the more we walked, went down deeper and deeper into this car, we found the real story of this car was not just that it was a Ford Mustang of a certain year, but it was one of those that had these special bolts in it. And that made it a very valuable car. Well, the Bible is like this story as well. The Bible is an overarching saga from 
Genesis to Revelations of the redemptive work of Christ. And it is a saga indeed. Within that story, we have a, large, a larger, a smaller story, but still a saga of the sweeping stories of Israel and God's movement, and then the life of Jesus. And then within those stories, we find even smaller stories, maybe the life of David. And then within that, we have even smaller stories, maybe David and Goliath, or, or what we're reading in this psalm right here, these particular moments or particular battles or particular seasons in David's life. And then within those stories, we find even smaller stories. And it's really the small, particular pieces of stories that I find extremely helpful. Let's just look back at our text in Psalm 18. It is the small little word pictures that we find, tucked, folded into these stories, that provide the depth and the, the vibrancy to the story. Now, so we find the context, so that helps us. The story within the story within the story within the story, and we find to the choir master a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who addressed the workers, the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord had rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hands of Saul. So there we have the, the piece of the story. It's not David's entire life. It's this one place. And then within this psalm, we find these very robust word pictures that David uses to try to communicate how the Lord has rescued him. And if we just look through there for a minute, we will begin to see these smallest word pictures. And what my premise is today is that every one of these word pictures is a story unto itself. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress, my deliverer, my refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, the cord of death, the cords of Sheol. Each one of these each one of these small little glimpses are actually a very robust story unto themselves. Now, when we have great capacity, when we're in our right mind and we're in our great, we have this capacity to understand comprehensive details and to synthesize them and to grasp onto these really robust, huge concepts, we don't need these little stories. We don't need these little word pictures. But I can tell you that there are times in our lives where we don't have the capacity for that. Where we are so tipped and we are so distorted and we're so overcome with the trials of life that we cannot grasp large concepts. And if we can reach out and grab one of these word pictures, one of these little um, uh, metaphors, we have something solid to grab onto that we can begin to cling to to begin to unfold the rest of the story. And sometimes our greatest strength comes in just grabbing one of these little metaphors, one of these little stories. A metaphor, by definition, is a figure of speech to describe something by saying it is like something else. And here David is just trying to communicate the work of the Lord, and yet he's given us these really familiar things, a rock. Who doesn't know what a rock is? 
Well, we, we know what a rock is. We know it's firm. We can tell things about it. And because we know what a rock is, we can begin to understand what he's trying to communicate about the work of God. Metaphors are all over our English language. He's a couch potato. A large, lumpy, lazy guy. Nobody's confused when we say he's a couch potato. Uh, She has a heart of gold. The party was a bomb. Bro, you're dripping. (laughs) Okay, so... (laughs) I'll have to explain that. Uh, there's There's a sprinkling of people in here that are connected to the real modern language. Dripping. Dripping with jewels, dripping with diamonds. It's a very uh, modern vernacular. But it speaks tremendous. When I when, when my kids are talking about someone who's dripping, it's part of the language. Like they're communicating something. There's a larger story going on in that phrase. Well, the Bible is filled with metaphors designed to help us understand comprehensive, larger concepts. Metaphors give us an image or relate an experience to us. The concept adds to our understanding. It fills in the three-dimensional aspect of the concept and gives it length and width and height and depth. It deepens our connection to the story and can even create emotion. If I said I had a friend, or I was talking to you and I said, listen, your friendship has been a bulwark to me throughout the years. If you didn't know what I was referring to, it wouldn't really have much impact. But if you knew that a bulwark was a a large defense or a wall of protection, and I said, brother, you have been this to me, and it has been so helpful and so meaningful to me in my life, well, then it carries substance and emotion and connection. But we have to know what these metaphors mean in order for us to understand the fullness. To get the fullest sense of the text, we have to understand these smallest Uh, details. Much of our Bible terminology is similar to these terms and concepts that are used that are intended to impact us, but often fall flat. They just leave us confused and unmoved because we don't really resonate with them. The Bible was not written to us like a dictionary with terms and definitions or a... um, or a book that just provides us with uh, the connections of things. It is a story. And it was meant to impact us as a story often does. We can see this if we just look at the names of God. Why is it that we don't have one word for God? Like just one name. Well, because God is not a one-dimensional being. He's. It, it, it takes all of our language and our, the way we think to to even begin to have the concept of God. Just in his names. El Shaddai means Lord God Almighty. Jehovah Rea, the Lord my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Just the names of God start providing a richness and a, and a depth to our understanding of who God is. Let me just read through some of the metaphors we have in the Bible for other, uh, besides his names for God. A father, potter, uh, shepherd, king, 
great physician, Alpha and Omega, judge, path, immovable mountain, uh, companion, lion, oasis, rock, refuge, high tower, shield. They're all metaphors trying to communicate an aspect of this God. Metaphors for Jesus, a vine and branch, ad, a vine, advocate, intercessor, high priest, beloved, bridegroom, light, branch, living water, sun, water of life, wellspring of life, lamb of God, bread of life, way, door of sheep, fruit, throne, table, robe, coat, covering, cornerstone, a rock, a shield, a fortress, sun and shield, a high tower, new creation, salt of the earth. Why is it that we need so many metaphors to describe this one being? Because he's that fast, that remarkable. And we grapple to try to articulate, to put in words the majesty of God. Metaphors for the Bible. A sword, a mirror, seed, milk, lamp, fire, hammer. Each of these concepts adds another layer to the majesty of God, the work of Jesus. There are attempts to bolster and to increase our ability to draw from them so that we understand these things, so that when we seek to consider Him, we have this deep well and reservoir to draw from. And sometimes when we think about considering Him, it isn't just understanding the large theological concept. We're just grabbing for one of these things. And we just pick it up. And we start turning it over. What does it mean? He is the vine. What is it? How could I process through that? Oh, that I'm life-giving. I'm connected. I'm part of Him. He's, he's, he's growing me. All these things. It will be my attempt as we work through uh, this series to just work through some of these metaphors. I was reading a book recently by Dane Ortland. The book is called Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners, and I would highly recommend it. But one of the things he did in there is identify uh, metaphors for some of the theological concepts that we use to talk about the work of Christ. And I was fascinated by it because this is some conclusion that I'd already come to in ministering the Word to people that are suffering and have li limited contact with the Gospel. And these metaphors, as he worked through, really reinforced uh, the need for me to understand these better. He listed metaphors like justification, the law-court metaphor, we're no longer condemned, adoption, the familial metaphor, no longer orphan, reconciliation, the relational metaphor, no longer estranged, washing, the physical cleansing metaphor, no longer dirty, redemption, the slave market metaphor, no longer enslaved. Purchase, the financial metaphor, for no longer in debt. Each one of these metaphors, we could, and, we, and there's libraries written on, and books written on these, uh, on each one of these metaphors. But when we see them as a metaphor, it helps us to begin to unfold them for us. And one of the things that I found very helpful for my own life is that I unfold those and I, and I turn them into a narrative that has happened to me. Justification, the law court meta, metaphor where Doug is no longer condemned. This is not just a metaphor. This is my story. This is what defines me. This is everything to me. 
that I have been brought into a court before the holy God and my sin was put on another and his righteousness imputed to me and I was declared not guilty and no longer condemned? Oh, these metaphors are so beautiful and so rich. But if we just read over them, we don't connect to them. They don't help us like they're intended to. Metaphors become simple tools to help us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. So my first point this afternoon was ridges on the bolts. My second point is rocks. Rocks. So let's look at Psalm 18. And I'm not going to expound this psalm. I'm just going to I'm going to start uh, working through the first metaphor. So how does this work, and what does this look like? Again, we pointed out some of the metaphors. The first one in verse two: "The Lord is my rock." As we consider Him and examine the details of these metaphors, it adds tremendous value to this whole story. A rock. What is it about a rock? that we could consider as we're considering him. Well, in Isaiah 43, we find out that God actually refers to himself as a rock. We have, while he is establishing his one, his onlyness, that he is the, the most supreme and that he is the only God, he refers to himself as a rock. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Yeah, a trained professional doesn't do that. Okay. Isaiah 43, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. For I have told you from old and declared it, and you are my witness. There is a God, there is a God beside me. There is no rock. I know not any. And it's referring to him his, himself as the only supreme rock. Rock is a very common way of referring to God, especially in the Psalms. It was one of David's favorite ways to refer to God. It often refers to his strength and his might. His, this omnipotence of God, this, he is the strongest. That nothing can come against him. It refers to his stability, that he is immutable, that he cannot change. A firm foundation, it cannot be budged or shifted. It is immovable. No force is greater than our God. It is impenetrable. No enemy or weapon can attack our God. Uh, it is righteous and faithful. In the song that, Mo that Moses wrote the end of Deuteronomy. He said, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. A rock can provide protection and refuge. It is a safe dwelling place and is referred to as the rock of habitation. It is enduring and everlasting. It is a stronghold. A rock provides sure footing when our feet almost slip. And when do we need a rock? Well, David said he needed a rock when he was under the attack of his enemies. When, he's, when we're uncertain, when we're fearful, when we're weak, when we doubt, 
when we're confused, when we're being tossed by the circumstances of life, when we're overwhelmed, when we're fraught with fear, when we feel like we're being oppressed through the circumstances of the world. What is it that we need at that point? We need a rock. We need a firm foundation, something that we can cling to that will not move, that will protect us fully and finally. In Exodus, Moses struck the rock with the judgment stick. And out of the rock, which Paul later tells us is Jesus, flowed living water. Jesus is the rock, who is the cornerstone, the source of all life, the protector, the sure footing, the rock of righteousness. It's referred to as the righteousness of God is this rock, immovable, cannot be altered. This rock should have crushed us, but instead it crushed the head of the serpent. We also have two rocks representing the law and the gospel, the rock of Mount Sinai, the rock of the law and judgment and condemnation, and the rock of Mount Sion, on which the throne of God sits, a rock of redemption, grace, forgiveness, and mercy. The characteristics and qualities of a rock are meant to communicate something to us. The rock tells its own story. At the smallest piece of the redemptive story in the whole Bible, we have this little piece, this rock, that tells this huge story. It is indeed a picture that is worth a thousand words. A child can understand a rock. And often when I meet with children or small uh, uh, young adults, we talk about rocks. We talk about these metaphors that God has given us. What is a high tower? What is a wall? What is a rock? What is a shelter? What is a shield? And we talk about God based on through these metaphors that God has given us to hold on to. One of the things we'll see in Psalm 18, though, is that David doesn't refer to the rock. He refers to my rock. When David was pursued by his enemies, he had to flee with great uncertainty and people. God was his rock. He was his sure footing. David was not referring to general fortune, good fortune but to a God who really and powerfully helped him in his time of need. When we consider him, one thing that I've found as I've asked people about this, talk to me about this God, talk to me about the gospel, many people, especially people that are struggling, talk to me about God in the third person. It's something out there. It's, it's a thought, a theological concept. And it isn't until we can talk about Jesus and God in the first person that it becomes powerful to us. And we see David doing that right here. This is not about a rock. It's about his rock, my rock. The story is about what has happened to him. He's singing this song about the rock that has done this for him, that has been his uh, refuge and rescue to him. Maybe you haven't experience a time where you were great torrents of difficulty and God provided you with a firm place to stand to find comfort and strength through his word through understanding him and his love and his character to you and God would have been your rock 
But I find that people struggle with this connection, this transition from the rock to my rock. And oftentimes it takes us working through these things personally. Where we're talking about them in a first person. This is my story. This is what the rock did for me. This is how I know God. This is how God showed up for me. This is how the, the evidence that, that in my life we know uh, rocks for sure. And we can, can think of a You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.